For too long, the world has had to endure the fallout of subpar academic research on Bitcoin mining's energy use and environmental impact. The outcome of this bullshit research has been shocking news headlines that have turned some well-meaning people into angry politicians and deranged activists. So that you never have to endure the brutality of one of these sloppy papers, I've sacrificed my soul to the Bitcoin mining gods and performed a full-scale analysis of a study from the United Nations University, published recently in the American Geophysical Union's Earth's Future. Only the bravest and hardest of all Bitcoin altists may proceed to the following paragraphs. The rest of you can go back to watching the price chart. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the full financial suite. If you're trying to buy Bitcoin, set up a savings, IRA, business, uh, you want white glove support, you name it, check out Swan. Uh, and of course, CoinKite and the cold card hardware wallet, the cypherpunk hardware wallet that will keep your Bitcoin safe from, you know, your own stupidity, but also just like hackers and general insecurity nightmares of the internet. Links and details will be in the show notes. And do not forget to check out my other podcast, AI Unchained. Uh, we've got some really, really fun stuff uh, happening over there. And the YouTube channel, I've got some really cool things to release soon. So that will be linked to in the show notes as well. And I'm also finally working on another meme. And if you have not seen my video, Long Form Memes, I, if I do toot my own horn, they are the best Bitcoin memes. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry to anybody who takes offense to that or think their memes are better because they aren't. Mine are the best. And you can check them out at the YouTube link. But in other news, today's episode, we have a great, really fun read today. If the opening uh, paragraph did not properly entice you to listen, uh, I promise you will, uh, you will want to get this one. And it's coincidental that we've been talking about energy use and stuff a lot. And holy crap, I tried, I, I actually had like this really long, like this plan to go through a bunch of different points on the, uh, I read a lot of the 10,000 page PDF or the paper um, that is connected to this article. And I was going to come up, I was going to have all these like really nice points and data and I was going to be very reasoned about it. And none of that happened. I just kind of started talking when I was finished with the read. And then like 40 minutes later, multiple screaming rants and lots of calling people stupid. I just decided it was time to end it. Um, and I blame it a little bit on Margot because her writing is really fun, but also very, very scathing, which just kind of got me in the mood. So Margot, if you listen to this, this is the the guy's rant after this is your fault. I'm just I'm just going to go ahead and absolve myself of all guilt before we get into this. And so while that's fresh in your mind, uh, we're just going to leave it there and we're going to jump right into today's read. This is about mining misinformation and as the uh, opening suggested, a university, a UN United Nations University research paper and essentially everything that was wrong with it 
and it's a good one. You're going to enjoy it. So with that, let's go ahead and get into today's read. And it's titled, Mining Misinformation, How the United Nations University Misrepresents Bitcoin's Energy Use, by Margot Paez. Revealing the junk science used by the United Nations University to attack Bitcoin mining, the first report from the FUD Fighters series. F*** bad research. I spent over a month analyzing a Bitcoin mining study, and all I got was this trauma response. Quote, We must confess that our adversaries have a marked advantage over us in the discussion. In very few words, they can announce a half-truth, and in order to demonstrate that it is incomplete, we are obliged to have recourse to long and dry dissertations. Friedrich Bastiat, Economic Sophisms, 1st Series, 1845. Quote, the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it. Williamson, 2016, on Brandolini's Law. For too long, the world has had to endure the fallout of subpar academic research on Bitcoin mining's energy use and environmental impact. The outcome of this bullshit research has been shocking news headlines that have turned some well-meaning people into angry politicians and deranged activists. So that you never have to endure the brutality of one of these sloppy papers, I've sacrificed my soul to the Bitcoin mining gods and performed a full-scale analysis of a study from the United Nations University, published recently in the American Geophysical Union's Earth's Future. Only the bravest and hardest of all Bitcoin autists may proceed to the following paragraphs. The rest of you can go back to watching the price charts. Your soft baby ears may have screamed with shock at the strong proclamation in my lead that the biggest and squeakiest research on Bitcoin mining is bullshit. If you've ever read Jonathan Kumi's 2018 blog post on the Digiconomist, also known as Alex DeVries, or his 2019 Coin Center report, or Lay et al. 2021, or Cy and Franken 2023, or Massinet et al. 2021, or well, the point is that there's thousands of words already written that have shown that Bitcoin mining energy modeling is in a state of crisis and that this is not isolated to Bitcoin. It's a struggle that data center energy studies have faced for decades. People like Jonathan Kumi, Eric Massonet, Armin Shihabi, and those nice guys Sai and Vranken, sorry we're not yet on a first name basis, have written enough pages that could probably cover the walls of at least one men's bathroom at every Bitcoin conference that happened last year that show this to be true. My holy altar, which I keep in my bedroom closet, is a hand-carved, elegant, yet ascetic shrine to Kumi, Massanet, and Shahabi for the decades of work they've done to improve data center energy modeling. These sifus of computing have made it all very clear to me if you don't have bottom-up data and you rely on historical trends while ignoring IT device energy efficiency trends and what drives demand, then your research is bullshit. And so, with one broad yet very surgical stroke, I swipe left on Mora et al. 2018, DeVries 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023, Stoll et al., 2019, Gallersdorfer et al., 2020, 
Chaminara et al., 2023, and all the others that are mentioned in Cy and Franken's comprehensive review of the literature. World, let these burn in one violent yet metaphorically majestic megafire somewhere off the coast of the Pacific Northwest. Reporters and policymakers, please, I implore you to stop listening to Earth Justice, Sierra Club, and Greenpeace, for they know not what they do. Absolve them of their sins, for they are but sheep. Amen. Now that I've set the mood for you, my pious reader, I will now tell you a story about a recent Bitcoin energy study. I pray to the Bitcoin gods that this will be the last one I ever write, and the last one you'll ever need to read. But my feeling is that the gods are punishing gods and will not have mercy on my soul, even in a bull market. One deep breath. Cue Heath Ledger's Joker. And here we go. On a somewhat bearish October afternoon, I got tagged on Twitter slash X on a post about a new Bitcoin energy use study from some authors affiliated with the United Nations University, Chaminara et al. 2023. Little did I know that this study would trigger my autism so hard that I would descend into my own kind of drug-induced gonzo fear and loathing in Las Vegas style and hyper-focus on this study for the next four weeks. While I am probably exaggerating about the heavy drug use, my recollection of this time is very much a techno-colored, toxic relationship-level fever dream. You remember Frank from the critically acclaimed 2001 film Donnie Darko? Yeah, he was there too. As I started taking notes on the paper, I realized that Chaminara et al.'s study was really confusing. The paper was perplexing because it's a poorly designed study that bases its raison d'etre entirely on De Vries and Mora et al. It uses the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, or CCAF, Cambridge Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, CBECI, data without acknowledging the limitations of the model. See Lay et al. 2021 and Cy and Franken 2023 for an in-depth analysis of the issues with CBECI's modeling. It conflates its results from the 2020 to 2021 period with the state of Bitcoin mining in 2022 and 2023. The authors also relied on some environmental footprint methodology that would make you think it was actually possible for you to shrink or grow a reservoir depending on how hard you Netflix and chill. Really, this is what Obringer et al. 2020 inferentially conclude is possible, and the UN study cites Obringer as one of its methodological foundations. By the way, Kumi and Massonet did not like Obringer et al.'s methodology either. I'll light another soy-based candle at the altar in their honor. Here's a more clearly stated enumeration of the crux of the problem with Chaminara et al., and by the way, their corresponding author never responded to my email asking for their data so I could, you know, verify, not trust. The authors conflated electricity use across multiple years, overreaching on what the results could reveal based on their methods. The authors used historical trends to make present and future recommendations, despite extensive peer-reviewed literature clearly showing that this leads to overestimates and exaggerated claims. The paper promises an energy calculation that will reveal Bitcoin's true energy use and environmental impact. They use two sets of data from CBECI. One, total monthly energy consumption, and two, average hash rate share for the top 10 countries where Bitcoin mining is operated. 
Keep in mind that CBECI relies on IP addresses that are tracked at several mining pools. CBECI-affiliated mining pools represent an average of 34.8% of the total network hash rate. So, the data used likely have fairly wide uncertainty bars. After about an hour or so of Troy Cross talking me off a rather impressive Art Deco and weather-worn ledge that's probably seen a few Great Gatsby flappers jump, the result of feeling an overwhelming sense of terror after my exasperated self realized that no amount of cognitive behavioral therapy would get me through this study, I determined that the equation the authors used to calculate the energy use shares for each of the top 10 countries with the most share of hash rate, based on the IP address estimates, had to be the following. Annual energy consumption, sub I, equals hash rate share, sub IJ, times total energy consumption, sub J, where I is mainland China, Russian Federation, etc., and J is January, February, March, etc., through December. Don't let the math scare you. Here's an example of how this equation works. Let's say China has a shared share for January 2020 of 75%. Then let's also say that the total energy consumption for January 2020 was 10 terawatt hours. These are made up numbers for simplicity's sake. Then for one month, we'd find that China used 7.5 terawatt hours of energy. Now save that number in your memory palace and do the same operation for February 2020. Next, add the energy use for January to the energy use found for February, do this for each subsequent month until you've added up all 12 months. You now have CBECI's China's annual energy consumption for 2020. Before I show the table with my results, let me explain another caveat to the UN study. This study uses an older version of CBECI data. To be fair to the authors, they submitted their paper for review before CBECI updated their machine efficiency calculations. However, this means that Chaminara et al.'s results are not even close to realistic because we now believe that CBECI's older model was overestimating energy use. Moreover, to do this comparison, I was limited to data through August 31st, 2023 because CBECI switched to the new model for the rest of 2023. To get this older data, CCAF was generous and shared it with me upon request. If you would like to see the table that was pulled together from this, it shows various countries and then the 2020, 2021, 2020 plus 2021 energy consumption, and then Chaminara's calculation, and then the percent change between them for mainland China, United States, Kazakhstan, Russia, Malaysia, etc. It's a useful table to dive into if you want to kind of get specifics and paint a picture of all this. Another tricky thing about this study is that they combined the energy use for both 2020 and 2021 into one number. This was really tricky, because if you look at their figures, you'll notice that the biggest text states, total 173.42 terawatt hours. It's also slightly confusing because the figure caption states 2020-2021, which for many people would be interpreted as a period of 12 months, not 24 months. Well, whatever. I broke them up into their individual years so everyone could see the steps that were taken to get to these numbers. Look at the far right column with the header percent change between 2020 and 2021 calculations. I calculated the percent change between my calculation and Chaminara et al's. This is rather curious, isn't it? Based on my conversations with the researchers at CCAF, the numbers should be identical. 
Maybe the change log doesn't reflect a smaller change somewhere, but our numbers are slightly different nonetheless. China has a greater share, and the United States has a smaller share in the data that CCAF shared with me compared to the UN study. Despite this, the totals are fairly close. So let's give the authors the benefit of the doubt and say they did a reasonable job calculating the energy share given the limitations of the CBECI model. Please bear in mind that noting that their calculation was reasonable doesn't mean that it's reasonable to use these historical estimates to make claims about the present and future and direct policy. It isn't. One evening, while working by candlelight, I glanced to my left and saw Frank's stabbing black pupils, the Donnie Darko character I mentioned earlier, staring at me like two pieces of stronghold waste coal, fixed in a quiet bed of pearly sand. He was reminding me that this report was still not finished and something about time travel. I grabbed my extra soft curls, I switched to bar shampoo, it's a godsend for frizz, and yanked as hard as I could. Willie Nelson's 1974 Austin City Limits pilot episode blasting on my cheap-ass Chinese knockoff monitor's mono speakers was moving through my ears like heroin through Lou Reed's four-lanes-wide network of veins. Begrudgingly, I accepted my fate. I needed to go deeper down this rabbit hole. I needed to do a deeper analysis of the 2020 and 2021 CBECI data to show how important it is to do an annual analysis and not blur the years into one calculation. Realizing I was out of my hard liquor of choice, a splash of sherry in a Shirley Temple, shaken, not stirred, I grabbed a bottle of bootleg antiseptic that I got during the pandemic lockdown and chugged. I flipped through my notes. I have lots of notes because I'm a serious person. What about the mining map issues? Can we do this through an analysis of the two separate years? What was happening for each of the 10 countries? Does that tell us anything about where hash rate went after the China ban? What about the Kazakhstan crackdown? That's post-2021, but the UN study acts like it never happened when they're talking about the current mining distribution. Not to the author's credit, they failed to mention to the peer reviewers and to their readers that the mining map data only goes through January 2022. So even though they talk about Bitcoin mining's energy mix as if it represents the present, they are completely wrong. Their analysis only captures historical trends, not the present and definitely not the future. See this multicolored plot of CBECI's estimated daily energy use in terawatt hours from January 2020 through August 31st, 2023? At this macro scale, we see plenty of variability. But also, it's apparent just from inspection that each year is different from the next in terms of variability and energy use. There are a number of possible reasons for the cause of variability at this scale. Some possible influences on energy use could be Bitcoin price, difficulty adjustment, and machine efficiency. More macro-scale influences could be as a result of regulation, such as the Chinese Bitcoin mining ban that occurred in 2021. Many of the Chinese miners fled the country for other parts of the world. Kazakhstan and the United States are two countries where hash rate found refuge. In fact, the power of the Texas mining scene really came to be at this unprecedented moment in hash rate history. Look at the histograms for 2020, top left, 2021, top right, 2022, bottom left, and 2023, bottom right. It's obvious that for each year, the estimated annualized energy consumption data shows different distributions. 
Even though we do see some possible distribution patterns, we have to be careful not to take this as a pattern that happens every four-year cycle. We need more data to be sure. For now, what we can say is that some years in our analysis show a bimodal distribution, where other years show a kind of skewed distribution. The main point here is to show that the statistics for energy use for each of these four years are different, and distinctly so for the two years that were used in Chaminara et al.'s analysis. In the UN study, the authors wrote that Bitcoin mining exceeded 100 terawatt hours per year in 2021 and 2022. However, if we look at the histograms of the daily estimated annualized energy consumption, we can see that daily estimates vary quite a bit. And even in 2022, there were many days where the estimated energy consumption was below 100 terawatt hours. We're not denying that the final estimates were over 100 terawatt hours in the older estimated data for these years. Instead, we're showing that because Bitcoin mining's energy use is not constant from day to day or even minute to minute, it's worth doing a deeper analysis to understand the origin of this variability and how it might affect energy use over time. Lastly, it's worth noting that the updated data now estimates the annual energy use to be 89 terawatt hours for 2021 and 95.53 terawatt hours for 2022. One last comment. Miller et al. 2022 showed that operations, specifically buildings, with high variability in energy use over time are generally not suitable for emission studies that use averaged annual emission factors. Yet, that's what Chaminara et al. chose to do, and what so many of these bullshit models tend to do. A good portion of Bitcoin mining doesn't operate like a constant load. Bitcoin mining can be highly flexible in response to many factors, from grid stability to price to regulation. It's about time that researchers started thinking about Bitcoin mining from this understanding. Had the authors spent even a modest amount of time reading previously published literature, rather than operating in a silo like Sai and Vranken noted in their review paper, they might have at least addressed this limitation in their study. So, I've never been to a honky-tonk joint before, at least not until I found myself in a taxicab with several other conference-goers at the North American Blockchain Summit. Fort Worth, Texas is exactly what you'd imagine. Cowboy boots, gallon-sized cowboy hats, Wrangler blue jeans, and cowboys, cowboys, cowboys everywhere you looked through the main drag. On a brisk Friday night, Fort Worth seemed frozen in time. People actually walked around at night. The stores looked like the kind of mom-and-pop shops you'd see in an episode of The Twilight Zone. I felt completely disoriented. My companions convinced me that I should learn how to two-step. Me? Your standard California girl? Whose physics advisor once told her that while you can take the girl out of California, you can't take California out of the girl, should two-step? I didn't know a two-step from an electric slide, and the only country I remember experiencing was a Garth Brooks commercial I saw once on television when I was a child. He was really popular in the 90s. That's about as much country as this Bitcoin mining researcher gets. The place was filled with kitschy gift shops and bright lights everywhere radiating from neon signs. At the center of the main room, a bartender wearing a black diamond-studded belt with a white leather gun holster and lined with evenly spaced silver bullets. Who the hell knows what kind of gun he was packing, but it did remind me of the guns in the 1986 film Three Amigos. It was here, against the backdrop of what sounded like a country band that wasn't entirely sure that it was country, that I watched the Texas Blockchain Council's Lee Bratcher 
address a ball with the kind of trigonometric grace that you could only find at the end of a queue and land that billiard in a tattered leather pocket for what seemed like the hundredth time that night. The smooth clank of billiard against billiard awoke something inside me. I realized that I was not yet out of the rabbit hole that Frank sent me down. I remembered somewhere scribbled in my notes that I had not plotted the hash rate share over time for the countries mentioned in the UN study. So at half past three in the morning, I threw my head back to take a swig of some club soda and bumped it against the wall of a photo booth where nuclear families could pose with a mechanical bull and fell unconscious. Three hours later, I was back in my hotel room. Thankfully, someone placed some worthless fiat in my hand, loaded me into a cab, and had the driver take me back to the non-smoking room I checked into at the very center of the decay of 21st century business travel, the Marriott Hotel. Fuzzy-brained and bleary-eyed, I let the blinding, dangerously blue light from my computer screen wash over my tired face and increase my chances of developing macular degeneration. I continued my analysis. What follows are a series of plots of CBECI mining map data from January 2020 through January 2022. Unsurprisingly, Chaminara et al. focus attention on China's contribution to energy use, and subsequently to its associated environmental footprint. China's monthly hash rate peaked at over 70% of the network's total hash rate in 2020. In July 2021, that hash rate share crashed to zero until it recovered to about 20% of the share at the end of 2021. We don't know where it stands today, but industry insiders tell me it's likely still hovering around this number which means that in absolute terms, the hash rate is still growing there, despite the ban. Russia, also unsurprisingly, gets discussed as well. Yet, based on the CBECI mining map data, from January 2020 through January 2022, it's hard to argue that Russia was an immediate off-taker of exiled hash rate. There's certainly an immediate spike, but is this real or just miners using VPNs to hide their mining operation? By the end of 2021, the Russian hash rate declined to below 5% of the hash rate and, in absolute terms, declined from a brief peak of over 13 exahashes per second to a bit over 8 exahashes per second. When looking at the total year's worth of CBECI estimated energy use for Russia, we do see that Russia did hold a significant portion of hash rate. It's just not clear that when working with such a limited set of data, we can make any reasonable claims about the present contribution to hash rate and environmental footprint for the network. The most controversial discussion in Chaminara et al. deals with Kazakhstan's share of energy use and environmental footprint. Obviously, the CBECI mining map data shows that there was a significant increase in hash rate share, both in relative and absolute terms. It also appears that this trend started before the China ban was implemented, but certainly appears to rapidly increase just before and after the ban was implemented. However, we do see a sharp decline from December 2021 to January 2022. Was this an early signal that the government crackdown was coming in Kazakhstan? In their analysis, Chaminara et al. ignored the recent Kazakhstan crackdown where the government imposed an energy tax and mining licenses on the industry, effectively pushing hash rate out of the country. The authors overemphasized Kazakhstan as a current major contributor to Bitcoin's energy use, and thus environmental footprint. If the authors had stayed within the limits of their methods and results, 
then noting the contribution of Kazakhstan's hash rate share to the environmental footprint for the combined years of 2020 and 2021 would have been reasonable. Instead, not only do they ignore the government crackdown in 2022, but they also claim that Kazakhstan's hash rate share increased by 34% based on 2023 CBECI numbers. CBECI's data has not been updated since January 2022, and CCAF researchers are currently waiting for data from the mining pools that will allow them to update the mining map. I know I've shown you, my faithful reader, a lot of data, but go ahead and have another shot of the hardest liquor you have in your cabinet, and let's take a look at one more figure. This one represents the United States hash rate share in the older CBECI mining map data. The trend we see for the United States is also similar for Canada, Singapore, and what CBECI calls other countries, which represent the countries that did not make the top 10 list for hash rate share. There's a clear signal that reflects what we know to be true. The United States took a significant portion of Chinese hash rate, and this hash rate share grew rapidly in 2021. While we know that the CBECI mining map data is limited to less than a majority of the network hash rate, I do think that their share is at least somewhat representative of the network's geographic distribution. Hash rate geographic distribution seems to be heavily shaped by macro trends. While electricity prices matter, government stability and friendly laws play an important role. Chaminara et al. should have done this kind of analysis to help inform their discussion. If they had, they might have realized that the network is responding to external pressures at varying times and at geographic scales. We need more data before we can make strong policy recommendations when it comes to the effects of Bitcoin's energy use. At this point, I was no longer sure if I was a Bitcoin researcher or an NPC, lost in a game where the only points tallied were for the intensity of self-loathing I was feeling for agreeing to this undertaking. At the same time, I could smell the end of this analysis was near, and that with enough somatic therapy and EMDR, I might actually remember who I used to be before I got dragged into this mess. Just two days prior, Frank and I had a falling out over whether Courier New was still the best font for displaying mathematical equations. I was alone in this rabbit hole now. I dug my fingers into the dirt wall surrounding me and slowly clawed my way back to sanity. Upon exiting the hole, I grabbed my laptop and decided it was time to address the study's environmental footprint methodology, wrap up this puppy and put a bow on it. Chaminara et al. claimed that they followed the methods used by Ristic et al. 2019 and Obringer et al. 2020. There are a few reasons why their environmental footprint approach is flawed. First, the footprint factors are typically used for assessing the environmental footprint of energy generation. In Ristic et al., the authors developed a metric called the Relative Aggregated Factor that incorporated these factors. This metric allowed them to evaluate the placement of new electricity generators like nuclear or offshore wind. The idea behind this approach was to be mindful that while carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels were the main driver for developing energy transition goals, we should also avoid replacing fossil fuel generation with generation that could create environmental problems in different ways. Second, Obringer et al. used many of the factors listed in Ristic et al. and combined them with network transmission factors from Aslan et al. 2018. This was a bad move because Kumi is a co-author on this paper, so it shouldn't be surprising that in 2021 Kumi co-authored a commentary alongside Massinet 
where they called out Obringer et al. in Kumiya Massonet 2021. The authors chided the assumption that short-term changes in demand would lead to immediate and proportional changes in electricity use. This critique could also be applied to Chaminara et al., which looked at a period when Bitcoin was experiencing a run-up to an all-time high in price during a unique economic environment, low interest rates, COVID stimulus checks, and lockdowns. Kumi and Massonet made it clear in their commentary that ignoring the non-proportionality between energy and data flows in network equipment can yield inflated environmental impact results. More importantly, we have yet to characterize what this relationship looks like for Bitcoin mining. Demand for traditional data centers is defined by the number of compute instances needed. What is the equivalent for Bitcoin mining when we know that the block size is unchanging and the block pace is adjusted every two weeks to keep an average 10-minute spacing between each block? This deserves more attention. Either way, Chaminara et al. did not seem to be aware of the criticisms of Obringer et al.'s approach. This is really problematic because, as mentioned at the start of the screed, Kumi and Massanet laid the groundwork for data center energy research. They should have known not to apply these methods to Bitcoin mining because while the industry has differences from a traditional data center, it's still a type of data center. There's a lot that Bitcoin mining researchers can take from the torrent of data center literature. It's disappointing and exhausting to see papers published that ignore this reality. What more can I say other than this shit has to stop? Brandolini's law is real. The bullshit asymmetry is real. I really want this new halving cycle to be the one where I no longer have to address bad research. While I was writing this report, Alex DeVries published a new bullshit paper on Bitcoin mining's, quote, water footprint. I haven't read it yet, and I'm not sure that I will. But if I do, I promise that I will not write over 10,000 words on it. I've stated my case and made my peace with this genre of academic publishing. It was a fun ride, but I think it's time to practice some self-care, treat myself to several evenings of healthy binge-watching, and dream of the ineffable. If you enjoyed this article, please visit btcpolicy.org where you can read the full 10,000-word technical analysis of the Chaminara et al. 2023 study. This episode is brought to you by CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet along with the many other hardware and security devices that CoinKite has. But the cold card hardware wallet specifically and the tap signers as well are some of my favorite for utilizing a mobile environment that is naturally far less secure and going to be a far bigger concern for malicious code or clicking on the wrong thing, etc. But I know I can keep my keys separate and still just be able to easily use it and send a transaction whenever I need to because I use a, a wallet with tap signer and cold card where I can just tap to sign a transaction and then send. And the cold card is the only hardware wallet that you can just have fully air-gapped from start to finish. Just the entire life cycle of the cold card is just fully air-gapped. So it doesn't matter where or how you use it, the cold card is just the solution for keeping your keys safe and using your Bitcoin in a reliable manner. Check it out if you haven't yet, and don't forget my discount code, uh, Bitcoin Audible gets you 9% off. This episode is also brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. If you were trying to figure out where to easily buy Bitcoin, you already found it, Swan Bitcoin. If you were looking for an easy resource to start digging into and answering all of your questions about Bitcoin, well, that's Swan Bitcoin. 
including how to use your hardware wallet, which ones to pick, how to pick a, a, a software wallet. What the hell is Bitcoin? How does it work? How do I deal with Bitcoin privately? How do I keep myself secure? How do I keep my keys secure? If you were looking for a way to get it into your retirement account, you can set up an IRA in literally minutes. If you want to make a large allocation and you want to be able to smash by anytime you feel like it right in an app on your phone, well, guess what? You can do that with Swan Bitcoin. And honestly, this is just kind of the base. This is the beginning of the, the entire suite of financial services that they offer. The vault, the white glove service with Swan Private for high net worth individuals, the business accounts and, you know, getting business on a uh, getting your business on a Bitcoin standard guidance on how to manage a Bitcoin treasury, how to do employee benefit packages and save with them. Do your automated savings plan. You name it. Check it out at swanbitcoin.com guy. The link is right in the show notes. If you're looking to get into Bitcoin, Swan is the place to start. All right, and that wraps up the Bitcoin Magazine article about mining misinformation and a new Chaminara et al. Uh, paper, which we will undoubtedly have to address and will be quoted and referenced in a million new articles of just the same thing with the DeVries paper and uh, Mora et al., which is funny because the Mora et al. paper isn't even a real paper. Like, it's still crazy to me that that one is getting, it continues to get referenced. When it was literally a project of the undergraduates about the process of creating the paper, not about the topic that they were actually doing research on. Like, I think it was Nathaniel Harmon who talked about this, I, I believe, and, and like kind of broke this all down. And I'll see if I can't find the video. But it was crazy, and I covered it, I talked about it on the show as well in some episode. That's going to be difficult to find, but I'll, I'll do a, a cursory search and just see if I can kind of dig up uh, basically where it was that we, we broke down all of those pieces and just talked about why some of it is just explicitly wrong, and it's because accuracy wasn't really the goal. But regardless, it just it's crazy how bad and how also circular. It's a constant self-referential thing where they're constantly referencing things that did their exact same methodology or it, it's like the butterfly effect of getting things wrong when you get something wrong that's like 10% wrong or 30% wrong and then you reference that to do your next paper where not only is your thinking wrong on it but the reference that you start from is wrong so you're just extending their error and putting your error on top of it so these things like compound over time and somehow no matter how many times you correct there's the stupid thought process this bullshit just keeps festering and spreading like a virus and just naturally, this is something that academia just resoundly sucks at, is economic and incentive-based research and like kind of data accumulation in my, in my basically discovering or, or digging through all of this stuff, is that rather than understanding the incentives, they're, they're very, very strictly like by the numbers sort of empirical analysis, like they're studying something in physics when what they are studying is economics. This is the, the massive folly and uh, a completely misguided thinking that is built into Keynesian economics. And everything that studies of some sort of market phenomenon is does this exact same thinking. And that's how they get to the absolutely idiotic conclusions like some of these that talk about like it's going to use 
half of the world's energy consumption, or they project some trend out of how many how many machines are going to be thrown away or something, and nothing, like literally none of it has anything to do or even slightly looks like what actually happens on the ground. A prime example being that the S9s, the second they were out of the one of the papers that talked about the amount of waste that was supposed to be produced by the, the electronic waste that was supposed to be produced by Bitcoin was basically just said that as soon as something is obsoleted, then it's trash. And they just they just counted up how much how many generations of this were just going to be created in trash. And like literally almost none of the old miners just get thrown away. The only case in which I saw and I think I mentioned this in a recent episode, the only case in which I saw literally thousands of miners just get crushed and thrown into the garbage was the government confiscating, was the Chinese government, I think, confiscating a mine and then just destroying it all and turning it into garbage. Whereas I know, I watch on Kaboom Racks and a bunch of these things that I follow of uh, exchanges and and groups that are aggregating and uh, joint buying and selling miners. S9s are still extremely active. I have one right now and it's become like a common thing for Bitcoiners to use them as heaters because they are more efficient than a normal heater because a normal heater just uses up electricity and does nothing. An S9 as a heater uses up electricity, produces an equivalent amount of heat or a roughly comparable amount of heat and makes you a little bit of a Bitcoin on the side. So every bit of the calculation that says those S9s are somewhere in a dumpster or they're just in some giant landfill, which according to their estimates or according to their methodology of that, the, the one that I'm referencing that I can't remember the name of right now, would suggest that they are all there, all of them. And yet practically none of them are unless they are literally broken and can't be used for anything. But guess what? They're the, one of the most recyclable things you could possibly hope for. It's not a battery. It's not like a smartphone with a whole bunch of unusable components. It's like a couple of chipboards and a crap ton of aluminum, just like a giant heat sink. You take the chipboards out, which are silicon and a PCB board, and you throw that away, which actually I think some of that can be recycled. But like 80, 90% of the weight is just aluminum. You just turn right around and use it for something else. And so much of this stems from the basic failure to understand markets and incentives. This entire thing is an incentive-based structure. If this isn't being applied from a, from a derived logical understanding of the incentive structure and where markets are going to move and how people are going to make decisions, and this is treated as some empirical analysis where we just look at some sort of data point or trend and then project it out in the future, you're always going to be wrong. You're always going to be wrong. It's this stupid physics envy. I think Eric Weinstein talks about this, that they just want everything to be a math problem. And humans aren't math problems. They're rational actors with values and judgments and decisions. And they create new environments and new markets where things become too undervalued for their original purpose. It is literally a creativity and repurposing society-wide system. This is why every single one of them, it fails over and over and over again. And they just draw the same stupid shit again at a later year and say, well, this time we get it because we have like a little bit more data. No, you don't. You don't get it because you don't understand the thinking. You're just applying all of it wrong. You cannot empirically measure quality. You cannot empirically measure values and judgments in human decision making. You can't turn that. This is why GDP is so bullshit. This is why you can gut 
the manufacturing base and all of the quality and longevity of our economic systems and our economic tools and the manufacturing base can be exported overseas and we can turn into a country that's nothing but finance, nothing but derivatives in a service economy that can't even feed itself because all of its food comes from Mexico or somewhere else because we've priced ourselves out of our own markets and our major export is paper. We export finance, debt, and currency. That's it. And we import everything else from China, from India, from anywhere else in the world other than the U.S. And even the manufacturing that has stayed stagnant, that has relatively, like, just basically topped out and has remained in the U.S., none of it has grown while the quote-unquote U.S. economy has grown according to the GDP. The GDP can take into, not, and into account none of this. The GDP doesn't measure quality. That's why I use the joke because it's easy to remember and it's actually true of the one econ the two economists walking down the street. One of them sees a, a pile of dog crap and he says, I'll bet you uh, one of them bets the other one. I'll bet you $100. You won't eat that dog crap. And so he eats it and gets paid $100. And then they go down and there's some dog crap later. It's like, I can't believe you ate that. And he's like, well, hey, I'll pay you $100 to eat this dog crap. And the other one eats it and gets his $100 back. Then after a couple of minutes of walking, they say, why do I feel like nothing happened except that we ate two piles of crap? And the second economist says, ah, but we raised GDP by $200. The reason I tell that joke is because it's true. The GDP, if we replaced $200 worth of high quality organic sandwich economic activity, and we replaced it with $200 of eating shit, the GDP would have no idea that the economy just got awful. It is a meaningless metric that tells us it literally the only thing that can take into account the value judgments and the, the rational individual situation economic decisions of the people are the rational economic decisions of the people in their situation with money that they have earned, with the funds that they have allocated by the economy. You can't legislate quality into existence you can't you cannot finance values into an economy all you can do is manipulate the prices that hide the real values that the market is desperately trying to indicate and all of this stuff all of this in, this entire methodology the reason i hate even countering these stupid research papers is because the whole frame of thinking is bullshit it's not just the data it's not just the fact that they project out some 2021 you know chart that they drew and take it and have no idea what happened in 2022 even though the entire situation changed it's not just that they make a bad a bad application of the data that they have available and they misunderstand some of the major pieces of how Bitcoin works and where it fits in. It's that the failure to even grasp the incentive structure and think about this from an economics principles point of view is just wholly wrong. None of this research, because of the way the research is done, means anything. It's not going to give us an environmental impact of dog shit. Because the environment, the, the Bitcoin has no environmental impact. Like if just if just like running around just talking about like what the environmental impact of anybody's house is or what a parking lot is, is such a ridiculous thing. It's just a bunch of masturbatory virtue signalers running around deciding how they can judge what other people should and shouldn't do. That, oh, well, all the things that I do obviously are worth it, but you did this one thing. It's like, it's like walking through a neighborhood and being like, this person, I don't like the, pers the, the, the color of this person's house, therefore... 
I'm going to write a research paper on how it hurts people's eyes in this certain way and it, and it screws up circadian rhythms. When really the source of all of it is that they just want to control what other people do. None of what they are actually assessing has anything to do with an environmental footprint that is even related to Bitcoin miners. They are trying and using the very methodology they do in order to measure the quote-unquote environmental footprint of energy producers. Bitcoin miners don't produce energy. They are computers that you plug into a wall. They use electricity. Electricity has a huge variety of ways that it can be created. In other words, you can have two perfectly identical Bitcoin miners, and one of them can be using the dirtiest of shit coal. No, it can, it can literally be, use, be using logs cut down from the most precious rainforest in the world, combined with human feces burned in a turbine that just turns it to elect, make electricity. And it could be using, it could be running an SJ-19 Pro, or it could be the most glorious, environmentally harmonious, virtue-signaling, bullshit energy source, whatever they want to call it this year, that they pretend has no impact at all, like a solar panel, which is not even close to the environmental-saving poster child that they pretend it is. But notice, when we try to figure out what the quote-unquote environmental impact of those two miners are, the miner has nothing to do with the results. That should tell you something. And this completely fundamental reality, this base truth, is lost just in the mental framing for where these research papers are created. They lose their attachment to reality before they even put words on the paper because of how they are trying to go about it and what they, the complete lack of understanding of what the f*** they are talking about. Economics is not physics. It doesn't have an equation for value like the equation for gravity. It's entirely subjective, which means it depends on the value judgments, the past and history, and the experiences of the person making the decision, which is why you want every single person making their economic decisions individually, because it makes the economy as a whole a giant parallel processing supercomputer of all of the individual value judgments, decisions, and basic knowledge, the, the, the granular knowledge and situation of everybody in all of the different pos positions all across society, all across the world, all information that is entirely unknowable in a centralized context, which is larger and more varied at any one second of the day than any centralized entity could ever be broadly connected enough to even begin to understand or take advantage of. It is a wholly and entirely decentralized existence of a thing that can't be centralized. And this is an attempt to take a centralized model thinking and apply it to it. There's no equation of gravity. There's no E equals MC, square, MC squared for value judgments or economic decisions or whether or not you increase investment over here and what other people, what people are going to decide to do this. If it was, you could make an equation to be an entrepreneur and succeed every time. That's fucking stupid. Because as soon as people start doing entrepreneurship a certain way, it becomes disrupted. Because it, it's necessarily, it's like, it's like saying that you can figure out some perfect algorithm to, to move the market. Like just, just in the finance world. Just in the, oh, we're nothing but numbers and we're nothing but charts. It doesn't work. 
imagine the the next level, the orders of magnitude of infinitely more complex the organic economic system of society is than just the stupid charts and numbers on the f***ing New York Stock Exchange. But even equities follow this rule. Even finance bros cannot defeat this basic reality. You want to know why? Because if they developed a perfect algorithm to predict what was happening into the, in the market and then 5%, 10% of the market started using it, it wouldn't work anymore because it's now referencing itself for what's going to happen in the future. It becomes the very thing that is moving the market. It's no different than saying you can make the perfect product that will never, that will always have the, the universal customer base or some perfect TV show that will always capture everybody's attention for infinity. When anybody with half a brain knows that none of that is static, tastes change, the very existence of the TV show will likely change, if it's even slightly successful, will likely change the taste of the person who watches it to, to do and watch a different type of show or a different type of entertainment. And if you make the perfect horseshoe, it doesn't tell you shit about whether a hundred years later somebody's going to want a carburetor or fuel injection. Our understanding, our collective understanding and the political and academic understanding of economics is so f***ing abysmal that the literal country is driving itself into a cliff. This is how bad it is. And this is the exact thinking that's going into this research. It's the same dog shit quote-unquote science of draw a line here and stick a number over here and then divide by this and here's what the future is going to give us. I mean, can you can you fathom the the stupidity of trying to boil down the complexity of a human market to just like three or four indicators of just like if it's not the latest miner with the most efficient hashing, then it's by definition as soon as the new one comes out, everything that's not it is now garbage. It's just sitting in a landfill somewhere. Not with anything to back this up. Not with any nuance, not with any variations in the cost of energy. No, just out-of-date garbage. And this also enlightens quite a bit about the very concept of quote-unquote peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed is just confirmation bias for a bunch of academic people. There's a reason why practically zero technology and disruptive breakthroughs came from peer-reviewed papers in academia. It doesn't produce shit. It just produces more of these numbers to confirm a bias of what the peers already think. Can you imagine what the peer-reviewed analysis of Galileo would have been? Peer-reviewed as some great thing is like extremely recent it's like it really only started becoming the quote-unquote gold standard in the 70s and guess what's been thoroughly peer-reviewed literally everything that's broken with society today all our economics about the debt just keep going up the debt keep inflating the money supply keynesian theory all peer-reviewed the food pyramid peer-reviewed to hell and back Fattest, sickest generation to ever walk in the United States of America? Not relevant. Bow to the peer-reviewed pyramid. There are few things that would like re likely result in a more aggressive rejection of something truly disruptive and truly fundamentally altering of a, a normal person's bias or Overton window or the way they saw the world than dismissing its merits based on a peer review.
But anyway, now we're getting into a lot of the fundamental things that I have with the way the establishment mental model just crashes into the world over and over again and fails over and over again and then just insists that it could not possibly be their mental model. It's that everybody else is too stupid to do what they say. That's, that's what I see over and over again. How many times does a regulation come in and it completely and utterly shits the bed? Like the Department of Education. I mean, this is every story. Every story of every regulator is they come in. Now we spend billions of dollars on them. We get a whole class of unelected bureaucrats who just sit there and micromanage every single thing we do and take in ungodly amounts of power and then just become this giant friction on everything that we try to fix because that's the whole point of an economy is to fix problems and to work together to figure out what those problems are and how best for the individual to value those solutions. And now we are drowning in trillions of dollars in nothing but accounting manipulation to cover up all of that shit to misinform of what's actually going on in the market and then counterfeit currency so that all the bankers who are insolvent, who've leveraged us into a dismal future, to keep bailing them out so they continue to control everything at our cost. But I digress. Let's go back and focus on the Department of Education. We now spend billions on this institution to quote-unquote fix education, to bring education to everyone, to improve it. And what have we gotten? Nothing but failure. Even scores are down, which have been manipulated to be shittier and shittier as a standard. The standard has continued to fall, and our scores still fall according to the lower standards, which was just their way to try to trick the data to make it look like they weren't such absolute wasted garbage. We have parents in local communities with less and less power over what the hell we are even being taught. The value and results of higher education have plummeted. The cost has skyrocketed for all of it. Undoubtedly, you will hear some establishment politician just bitch and moan about how there's no funding anymore and they're not paying anybody. There has never been a single year in which funding has declined. Look at the actual funding. Look at what we actually spend per student to get worse and worse results. Literacy rates are falling. We peaked in 19, like the 60s, 70s, somewhere around that area, and we've been falling. L literally, if there was any report card, any report card we could give to the Department of Education, all we have are Fs across the board if it was free. If what they were doing was free, if it had no other cost, if we were just looking at what the results were. How much does it cost to educate a kid? How smart are they when they come out? How good, how, how well are their decisions? How well are they financially and uh, value, like ju value judgments and like skillfully prepared for the economy? What's their financial situation? What do the job opportunities look like? Can they do anything of value? How do they get out of college with degrees and go be baristas? How likely are they able to afford a house? How much does this cost each taxpayer to go through this? And also, can they read? By any of these metrics, the Department of Education has made everything worse. It has become more monocultured. It has become more expensive. It has lowered the quality. It has lowered the standards and still lowered the scores. And it has worsened literacy rates. In an economy where students get out of school prepared for nothing, but they certainly have very strong, uninformed political opinions. So there's something to say for that. 
I literally think that if you just taught kids two years of home economics and threw the rest in the garbage, we'd be better off. But maybe that's the real cynical person in me that watched really great teachers completely squandered by a shit system that didn't let them do anything. And don't forget, the Department of Education has soaked up billions and billions of dollars. In other words, for the wonderful result of making all of our kids' education worse, lowering the standards, and increasing the costs, all we had to do was give up a few million kids' education in order to get that. And I don't mean that we lost a few million kids' worth of education in the lower in quality. I mean that the cost of the Department of Education is capital that could have gone to our children's education. And what's funny is this is almost universally the case when it comes to a lot of regulation and a lot of these institutions. And in fact, if you look at the places where they were most successful, it's almost always just in some, in some market or trend in which it was already going their direction in which we already were solving the problem. Then they create some institution called Make This Problem Go Away, and they point at the chart that says, after we did it, look, everything was trending down. But if you extend it out for the last 50 years before that institution existed, it's just a, it's just a line down. And then at the end of it, they create some institution, and it curves out and flattens. Welfare, another great example. Poverty is worse. Subsidies for unmarried uh, single, single women, especially single mothers in minority communities, abysmal, abysmal results. Black community is a great example. In the 70s, when they were dealing with seriously bad prejudice and segregation in the economy in the 60s and 70s, they had the strongest families of any demographic. Now, now they have the worst. They had the lowest divorce rate. Now they have one of the highest. I think the highest, if I'm not mistaken. And who'd have thunk? It's subsidized, for crying out loud. This is what happens every time you treat people like a math equation. When you think economics is physics, you break stuff and you hurt people. And you say stupid shit and come to stupid conclusions. And this is the exact mental model that informs all of this research, trying to come up with the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining, which is a nonsensical idea before you even get started. And I'll grab a quote before we end this out because it just turned into a big rant and I barely even addressed some of the main things in it because I just think it's so fundamentally broken with the very idea, with the very methodology that these people are even, the, the mental framing of where they're coming from. I will actually address uh, one of the main points or, or a major element of all of this. And, uh, and I will link, be sure to link to the 10,000 word paper uh, by Margot. It is a PDF and uh, it's much less fun than this uh, article, um, but it's worth, I guess it's worth going through. You know, she put in a massive amount of work, so it's worth the respect. I'm going to finish going through it. Um, I've gotten through most of it, but like she said, it's really just exhausting. But out of respect for the amount of work that she put into this, I am going to do it, and if you want those bullet points, you really want the hard facts that are that really get in the way or that you can use to counter the argument or whenever this, the hundred thousand times that this is going to be referenced in some stupid LA Times article. If you want that degree of specificity, I highly, highly recommend it. But here's an interesting point. Um, this is a quote from the article. This is one last comment. Miller et al. 2022 showed that operations, specifically buildings, with high variability in energy use over time are generally not suitable for emission studies that use averaged annual emission factors. Yet, that's what Chaminara et al. chose to do. 
and what so many of these bullshit models tend to do. A good portion of Bitcoin mining doesn't operate like a constant load. Bitcoin mining can be highly flexible in response to many factors, from grid stability to price to regulation. It's about time that researchers started thinking about Bitcoin mining from this understanding. Had the authors spent even a modest amount of time reading previously published literature, rather than operating in a silo like Sai and Vranken uh, noted in their review paper, they might have at least addressed this limitation in their study. So in part, what she's kind of saying here is that if you don't think about this like economics, like actual economic incentives and market conditions, um, and you just, you, you just take in a bunch of numbers and then start drawing lines, you're going to have a bad time and you're going to just be wrong about everything. Especially when you talk about like annualized energy makeup and, you know, kind of like the breakdown of things. And like a great example is just just thinking about the incentives and the structure of a mining operation and having a basic understanding of how it works and what kind of agreements and setups they actually build. Like, go look at them for crying out loud. So if we go ahead and throw out the whole Bitcoin mining has none of the impact that they're trying to attach to it, has literally nothing to do with it. If we take their false premise and work from there, let's discuss why even this model of it is wrong. So let's take an example of a Bitcoin mining operation that's uh, contracted with a contracted as a grid balancer in Texas uh, with Air ERCOT. Um, and so they're a quote unquote, you know, buyer of last resort and they're soaking up the excess energy created during the day. So we're in this, the grid in this area, according, you know, for Chaminara's sort of purposes and this sort of research, they're going to look at this area and they're going to say it's made up of 30% solar energy, 10% wind, and 60% petroleum and natural gas, which we'll just batch together as uh, the evil version of energy production because all the political virtue signalers, signalers will think if, if they can't come up with some extremely shallow and fallacious way in which it's like harmonious with the environment as if the toxic solar panels and all the freaking batteries you need and the ridiculous mining operations that are like 10 or 20x the amount of impact as drilling oil for the same amount of energy and then the huge unbelievably low density space for that energy production the amount of like just land you just have to completely wipe out to get an ass ton of solar panels which have a really short lifespan and degrade and produce unreliable energy because they don't do you don't you can't just like turn them on and tell them to produce this amount at any one particular time let's ignore all of that but that's the one that's harmonious with the environment because it just it just takes in the sun Screw actually giving a shit about what any of this means. Screw actually trying to produce reliable energy sources. Because we don't actually care about the environment, we just want something to sound like it cares about the environment. But anyway, that was a very long tangent on why we're just going to loop everything else except for wind and solar into just the 60% pile of evil energy. So let's think about this from a quote-unquote load balancing perspective and the fact that the miner is not going to be paying consumer prices for electricity. They are going to want to specifically make a contract to get prices that are below consumer level, below normal consumer electricity prices, specifically because that is absolutely going to be the price in which they are not profitable because of the way the global architecture of mining and the proof of work uh, requirement, the, the difficulty adjustment, operates there is no timeline in which miners can compete 
with normal, everyday uses of electricity and ever be profitable. If it could ever exist, more miners are going to come online extremely quickly until it is not viable anymore. That's literally just the way the economics pan out. If you don't understand the economics of Bitcoin, you will never, ever understand the economics of Bitcoin mining. They are completely and irrevocably tied to each other. Another part of the problem why all of this research always sucks. But let's say, you know, consumers would generally max their uh, energy use, their electricity use, somewhere around like 8 o'clock in the evenings, somewhere in that zone, right? They're, after, they're off work, they're Netflix and chilling and all that stuff. So this brings up the price of energy, at least from a contractual standpoint, because load is very, very high. And this would cause miners to shut down. This is what the load balancing operation is for. If there is no excess energy or, you know, air conditionings come on or, you know, heat comes on, refrigerators go into overdrive because everybody's opening them up, the computer's on, their TV's on, everything's using electricity because they're home and they're active. This is when the miners close down. This is also when we are predominantly not going to be using solar. The 30% of energy from solar is now 0% of the energy from solar. It's all evil energy. So now we go through the night and we're back around to 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, energy is starting to dip. And when's the lowest time? When, when does energy dip the lowest for most consumers in the grid? Well, it happens to be right around the middle of the morning and middle of the day, especially on a sunny day when people are more likely to be outside actually enjoying the environment. And this also happens to be when all of those solar panels are creating massive amount of electricity that's being dumped into the grid that has nowhere to go. And this is when the miners cut back on at much lower rates that they have contracted with the energy producer. They get paid a small subsidy to cut off when energy use is high and it's expensive and they need to load balance for the grid. And then they cut back on when there's a whole bunch of excess solar and only 5%, 10% of that is being used. And there's a huge amount of unused wasted electricity and Bitcoin comes in and soaks up all of that waste so it doesn't get basically thrown in the garbage by the stupid environmentalist system that got set up. They need Bitcoin to actually not be stupidly and horrifically wasteful in the way they create energy because they don't know anything about creating energy. They only know about virtue signaling. And virtue signaling has never kept anybody warm at night ever, I promise. So now we do the Chaminara et al. analysis on what the energy map makeup is of this mine and how much evil energy it uses and how many baby polar bears were killed. Well, how would the energy makeup of that area or the relevant production in, for the, that entire year have anything to do with what the Bitcoin miner was using? So despite the fact that the harmonious energy sources of wind and solar were only 40% of the energy makeup of the area, it may have literally been 80 to 100% of what the miners are actually using. Not because of the makeup of the area, but because of when they were consuming the energy. Energy is not fungible. It's different at different places. It's different at different times of day. It's a huge, variable, multifaceted, dynamic thing that's always changing. Therefore, the measure of, oh, it killed 30 baby seals, 
is not only wrong at the core of the premise before we even get started in this conversation, but even in their analysis is going to be grossly overblown because they have no idea what a Bitcoin miner does or how it works or how the grid works. And in the same stupid, arrogant breath, they will brag about how all the incredibly short lifespan mountain of toxic batteries, electric cars in the area are 40% renewable energy. And not one of those self-righteous pieces of shit is keeping their Tesla unplugged all night because there's no solar energy. It's funny, the makeup of their bullshit electric car that they got subsidized and is actually worse for the environment in like a bunch of different ways. It's definitely going to be plugged in all night. But unfortunately for common sense, the subsidies and bureaucracies that pay for this bullshit research happen to get their funding through the exact same institutions and bills that subsidize their electric cars. But at least they can all pat themselves on the back, look in their smart mirror to get the weather for tomorrow as they brush their teeth, and tomorrow they'll play a video game on the way to work in their autonomously driving car. And when they get there, they're going to write a speech on how all the poor and middle class of the world are a poison and that using energy is evil and better access to electricity and fuel should be restricted to the billion plus people who live without even the basic necessities because somehow human prosperity is going to destroy the world. And they'll wrap up that speech and they'll hand it off to their politician or corporate lackey with all the necessary references and bullshit peer-reviewed studies from the hundreds of people who have the audacity to write a bunch of research papers about shit they don't know the first thing about and who could not even describe what proof of work does as they hop on their private jet and fly off to the World Economic Forum with the biggest group of entitled assholes in the world to share their plan to calculate the environmental cost of every single human being and lock them all in their tiny little carbon cages because it's up to them to save the f***ing world. Well, guess what, you pompous moron? I am mining Bitcoin right now in my home to keep my house warm and my family comfortable. And in addition, I get the benefit of contributing just a little bit to defunding the system that subsidized your dumbass. Bitcoin has never wasted a single kilowatt hour of energy because the political debt bloated system that your propaganda is trying to prop up is the waste of energy that Bitcoin is fixing. So, you know, this is what happens. This is what happens when I read something. Like, Margot writes this, like, scathing, like, very entertaining and aggressive piece, like, shutting this down. And I can't, like, this is the only way that I know how to do the commentary on that. Like, she gets me worked up, and this is what happens. So, anyway, we will close this one here. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you to the multiple people who... Uh, gave me a shout out and linked me to this article. Thank you to Robbie. Uh, uh, Robbie? Uh, take, oh my God, I, Margot Robbie. That's what, that's what my brain just did. Thank you to Margot Paez for putting this together and the incredible amount of work that she did and the uh, larger paper, which, which I will uh, uh, link to in the show notes. It was a really, really fun read. Um, and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad we covered it on the show. And thank you also to Bitcoin Magazine, to CoinKite for supporting this show, and to Swan Bitcoin as well. And don't forget to check out AI Unchained. Uh, we got some really cool episodes coming uh, very soon and a couple of videos for YouTube. Don't forget the YouTube channel. Lots of fun stuff over there. Devs Who Can't Code, new series. You're going to love it. Until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys.
Forming your worldview by relying on the media would be like forming your view about me by looking at only a picture of my foot. Hans Rosling. <laughs>